I'm here on Coffee with Cornelius. We are talking to the director and founder of the Orthodox Conservatives. We're going to find out exactly what they do and how they plan to do it. We're talking with Tom Colsey. He is the founder and director of the organization, the Orthodox Conservatives. He is a politics and international relations student at the University of Oslo and the University of Kent. He has been published in the Foundation for Economic Education, Spiked, The Conservative Woman, and Brexit Central. Tom, thanks for joining us. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here, Cornelius. So you're the co-founder of the Orthodox Conservatives, and this is an organization that just came into the fore this year. It was founded this year, in fact. It says 2020. Uh, you guys have achieved quite a bit of popularity already. You guys are really moving things along, even despite the fact that we have a COVID-19 situation going on. How did, how did it come about? How did the Orthodox Conservatives as an organization come about? Well, first of all, I'm not sure if you can feel it over there on the other side of the Atlantic in Canada and yeah. US as well. There seems to be a tectonic shift on the right, away mm. from fusionist politics. But on purely short-term um, factors, there were two things, two main things that pushed me to sort of initiate this group. And they're quite esoteric. So for you know a Canadian audience, um, I'll have to probably explain them a little bit. But one was an article that was released just days before our election in the United Kingdom in 2019. And it explained that even though Boris Johnson may win and yeah. the Tories may get a majority, um, conservatives, broadly speaking, are in a very bad place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this, uh, a result of this is, um, this, these, this is due to dem broad demographic shifts. And not just demographic shifts in one area, but in all areas. So the fact that people are getting more educated, they're going into families less. Um, there, there's so many factors such as urbanization as well. And uh, the article sort of maintained with evidence that um, the clock is ticking for people who hold right. certain values. And it really hit home because we did get that majority. But unfortunately, it, I'm not sure the current conservative administration in the United Kingdom has the sort of intellectual rigor to realize that they are Turkey's awaiting Christmas at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason was the death of a philosopher that's, you know, broadly um, respected on this side of the Atlantic. And I, I, I hope that, you know, it, on the side, on the other side, Roger Scruton, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, his death uh, nearly exactly coincided with our founding. Um, so in the period between 20th of December 2019 and the 20th of January was when we began putting everything into place and this was uh, this was really the time in which we decided to get it in order um, so in terms of those demographic shifts I'd actually like to talk about them yeah please go ahead yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of urbanization there we don't know exactly why that urban areas tend to be far less conservative there are a number of theories as to this, you know, um, and this has been noted for a very long time. You know, originally the cities were where liberalism used to sort of take root. Mm. Um, partly, I believe, because in rural areas, life moves more slowly. People have yeah. to find meaning and pleasure in the more organic and sort of basic um, areas of life. You know, the family, um, broadly speaking, being part of a community, which is, tends to be stronger in such areas. Um, so that's one, but also intellectualism. And so the Orthodox Conservatives was set up just to, um, provide a place for 
social conservatives, you know, in, in uh, simple, simple terms. Um, that in British politics, that they're not given a very good representation. We have, you know, a conservative party like you guys do, I assume, in mm-hmm. the United yeah, States. Yeah, we do, yeah. They're nicknamed, uh, they're nicknamed the Tories as well. Yes, yeah, in Canada, we have the Tories as well. It's not commonly known as the Tories, but sometimes they are referred to as the Tories using, I guess, yes, the British true. antecedents. Yeah. A more niche nickname for them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So for those who know their political history and everything. Um, so yeah, um, with, even within the Conservative Party, they're not necessarily mm-hmm. committed to the philosophy at all. Uh, in this period of the 80s, I'm sure you're aware of Margaret Thatcher, there was yeah. a fusion of liberalism into the conservative right. Mm. So on the surface, they would be, the idea was they were going to combine free market economics with socially conservative politics. How far that the, the latter made it into policy is, is highly debatable. You know, Reagan was a patriot, but um, how far he protected the family, how, yeah. how far he protected, maintained Christian institutions in the United States, it's the same with Thatcher and the other side of it, well, over here. Um, and ever since Thatcher, social conservatism has not really been anywhere near policy on the right. Uh, but we know that people in the United Kingdom, there is an appetite for this. Um, for example, it was, uh, it was found recently that 76% of us abhor political correctness, which is an mm. enormous amount. In the United the- Kingdom? Yeah, yeah, That's surprising. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People look at Europe and they think that we're, you know, enamored with this stuff. But um, 76% of us apparently abhor it, according to findings by London School of Economics. And over 50% of our population believe that it's eroding our traditions and values as a people and a nation. And that's substantial. But it goes beyond, you know, just surface sort of level virtue signaling politics. Um, People are less so even younger generations they they have their own strange manifestation i wouldn't go so far as to say they're socially conservative but they are less accepting of infidelity than any other generation you know that we have Hmm. since the post-war era interesting Um, it is isn't it so are you talking about generation z like people born into the 2000s i suppose yeah Yeah. and um divorce rates are also falling and Hmm. that means that the ones who are actually getting divorced you know are less interested in throw yeah. away their commitment but um we also know that less people are getting divorced in the first place but it is interesting that divorce rates are falling so there does seem to be some sort of a change towards people having an appetite mm-hmm. for things that are more permanent things that are more are more rooted how does um, immigration affect all of this in the uk we're actually broadly um broadly accepting of it mm-hmm. so it, we Compared to the rest, this is the irony of Brexit, compared to the rest of the countries of the European Union, we're one of the most positive about immigration. Um, I think for most people in the, in the United Kingdom, it was about not being able to control it. And it was also mainly about jurisprudence. You know, we weren't, we weren't able to create the laws that we had, you know, demogra- the, our uh, judiciaries mm-hmm. and our legislators were not democratically accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but immigration is is a part of it um undoubtedly you know it's that culturally um there are areas you know in cities where it's easy to say if you look anybody looking there are there is segregation taking place mm-hmm. city like leicester for example which is now just one of the only countries in the united kingdom that has been put back into lockdown after this covid crisis 
Um, it's one of these um, majority minority cities, but unfortunately that sounds a lot better than it is. Um, I, if, you, if you look at the west and the east of the city, there is a lot of, um, so on one side it is two thirds Asian majority, and on the other side it's two thirds white majority. And, um, London. and uh, just just for my North American viewers, Asian in the UK context doesn't mean Asian in the North American context, right? It means people not only from uh, China and Japan or, or originally from those areas, but also India, Bangladesh, and those South Asian regions as well. Exactly. Um, so in terms of uh, a sort of backlash against, you know, a lot of liberal politicians would like to ignore these problems of segregation. Mm -hmm. A lack of social cohesion and they're uncomfortable realities for you know liberal politicians to to look at mm -hmm. um so it's it, it is part of i guess this broader backlash that that i wouldn't even call it a backlash but a feeling of disconsent with sort of liberal politics that pretend these things don't exist and that you know you don't need to do anything to foster social cohesion and harmonious communities um where conservatives would say we absolutely do you know our nation is a home our nation is home for all people, but we have an obligation to make things work for them, for everybody mm -hmm. that um, But in terms of these, um, these shifts, I find it interesting that intellectualism is something that contributes and has been noted to contribute to a lack of duty, a lack of feeling of duty among a population. Mm -hmm. um, and What do you mean by intellectualism? Well, a rise of... A rise of um, people going into and becoming part of the intellectual class. Um, right. You become more spectating and uh, academic. But, so more uh, people going into university, is that kind of what you're getting at here? Exactly. More people getting educated. And there was a, um, there was a historian who called Sir John Glubb, and he was writing in the 80s, and he was commenting that in civilizations, in civilizations there are four ages that people can that the the people can be part of the first two ages would be the ages of pioneers and the ages of conquest mm -hmm. so we can see this in the roman empire we can see this in all sorts of like the byzantine empire well byzantine started with the fall with of the roman empire yeah but uh, in most empires there's a uh, an age of innovation an mm -hmm. age of growth, and then an age of conquest but the next two ages are the age of commerce and the age of affluence Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to see that we have entered the latter two in the West. Yeah. Um, the, the innovation and, and being forward looking is, um, I, I think it's fair to say, is on the back foot. And he notes that decadence sort of comes in at these periods. So is it because you get so affluent that you just feel like you can sort of surround yourself and melt into the comforts of your society and not really, you're not really uh, incentivized to innovate or to go and explore other places? Is that fair to say? I, I think it's absolutely fair mm -hmm. to say. And uh, look, so with Orthodox conservatives, what we want to do is not only, you know, bring back to the mainstream right ideas of promoting the family and promoting tradition and mm -hmm. harmony society because we actually have theories of harmony liberals will say these things don't matter you know at the end of history um mm, yeah they, you know they imagine that everything everything has now fallen into place but man never changed man may have become slightly more consumeristic i think after the 90s may have become slightly more materialistic but his needs never changed he was uh, he was just as you know he just had the need for belonging 
as much as he ever did. Uprooting him, you know, was not going to solve anything. Um, so in terms of civilization, I believe, and much of the Orthodox conservatives believe that the West isn't in a good place. So not only do we want to represent socially conservative politics, but philosophically, we want to actually address the problems of the 21st century, which we think are primarily social and cultural. Mm -hmm. And these things may be tied slightly into economics. We know that um, when men aren't in employment, suicides are much higher. We know yeah. that divorce rates are higher. Mm -hmm. So economics might play a role, but um, I guess what would distinct us, make us distinct from the rest of right-wing politics is that it's so much focused on economics and money, whereas ours are more social and cultural. Because as I say, the 21st century faces a number of problems, but they're very particular and they're not. So if it came to a clash between markets and culture, you would favor the latter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, there was a quote from uh, Scruton that said, um, it is legitimate that social order would take precedence. precedence. Mm. I see. That seems like a losing proposition to me in some sense, because what you're essentially saying is that we are on the tail end of Western civilization. And I can see it. I mean, you ever, I think anybody who has eyes can see it, right? That the Western civilization that we knew and the ideals of Western civilization that we hold to are, are, are just crumbling apart. And, uh, you know, whether it's crumbling apart quickly or whether it's crumbling apart slowly, it does, it's not really a question that's happening. Um, what's the point of preserving some, a, a statue that is crumbling? Well, it matters enormously. It's yeah. Um, Scruton, to quote him again, said that we are not mm -hmm. just um, owners of these things, but we have duties of trusteeship. Mm -hmm. uh, to reference Edmund Burke, these things are not only our own, but they belong to the dead and they belong to the unborn. It is not ours to tarnish them and throw them away. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the philosophy of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. He's a German philosopher who influenced Marx and sometimes is confused as a Marxist. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't he had a very particular understanding of how we all exist within something mm. larger. And we are in some ways defined by the society around us. Um, now, he, he said that uh, we only exist in relation to how others recognize us. We exist within, you know, sort of the relationships and the paradigms within the society that we live. Uh, and it's correct. And all of us, all of us owe our thoughts, and our ability to function to the discoveries and the knowledge and the wisdom of those who raised us, who came before us. Um, without the input of our parents, the input of the education systems, the input of the civilization in which we participate, we would be very little. We would be little more than beasts without the mm -hmm. discoveries and inputs of others. And in some ways that not only means that we owe things back to the ones who gave to us, but it means we have an obligation to pass on this tradition of raising the new generation and if we, it's worth recognizing that from man being you know in history a primate a violent and you know a a being unable to um, build to learn to teach to draw to you know to create beauty uh, in more forms than one 
has been a long and ardent and strenuous process over history. And it, uh, I believe we're both Christians and we believe that God's mm, yes, yeah. an enormous, um, enormous part in this. But um, it's to forego this, this um, movement and this constant evolution and dialectic between man in his raw form to us now we have to appreciate what came before and we have to learn it. And it is, uh, I, I, th I was reading an article in Unheard by an excellent um, author who, you know, is well worth reading for you and all your, all your um, I guess, listeners and, and watchers um, by Aris Rusinos. And he was saying that statues represent civilizational, uh, well, the civilization's ideals mm -hmm. and when they start coming down that's not a good sign of a civilization's health um it, it's apt i think that at the what i hope is not but what seems to be as we say the twilight of our civilization's glory we begin to masochistically pull down all of the memories of things that some things which were not so great, but some things which were, you know, abolitionists being pulled down in the United States. That's a proud moment mm -hmm. of history. That's not, this is sure. not a, about oppression. This is not something that we should erase. Um, Let me ask about those statues more concretely. I assume that, you know, you're a Christian and you believe probably in virtue ethics, right? And to the extent that we have statues, uh, I would argue that they should confer upon the masses some sense of virtue. To the extent that they fail to do that, shouldn't they come down? Well, I think that's not so much a problem of the statues as much as our ability to pass down knowledge and education. Of what mm -hmm. they um, if somebody held a picture of the Bible up, and we went to nine different school kids, does this mean a lot to you? We'd probably had depressing results. It wouldn't probably. mean. Yeah. But that's not an argument, I would say, to burn the Bible as much as to educate it, educate sure. the people who aren't informed on what it probably yeah. represents. Um, there, there was an interesting, quite funny video in the United Kingdom that came, came about, and they were, they were interviewing two urbanites um, about why they, were, why they were wanted this statue, why they wanted to pull it down. And the first thing, the guy on the right said was, I don't actually know who it is. So has <laughs> been, well, you're an, you're an Orthodox, right? So I guess you're very yeah. familiar with the history of iconoclasm. And I don't want to draw yeah. it. It is a, sh a shame. I think the statue toppling began in the United Kingdom and it began with the statue of Edward Coulson, who was an incredibly morally ambiguous figure, you know, a capitalist merchant who profited massively off the slave trade but set up a load of charities in his native city of Bristol, which still exists today, hospitals and the rest of it. And there was a statue of him, they pulled him down, you know, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter riots. Um, and it, it, is, it is almost irritating to see that these, these weak arguments, which, are, which tend to be true, of people defending um, Coulson statue staying up and saying, look, this is a slippery slope. And within days, other statues of people who were not as tainted as mm -hmm. this man were under threat. I'm not sure if you've seen, but uh, in York, in the United Kingdom, uh, the statue of Emperor Constantine is now under threat. Is that right? 
<laughs> and for us, he's a saint. I mean, I guess for Catholics too, he's a saint. Am I right? Surprisingly, not. I yeah. don't think he generates it, even though he's oh, the founder. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that he's the founder of both of the um, modern churches. Well, founder, but he made it the Roman, the state mandate. No, That's interesting. But I mean, regardless, it would be very offensive for Orthodox Christians, at the very least, I think, to pull down the statue of uh, of one of our greatest saints and and someone we have a great feast day to. Yeah. And I think this is happening in California too. Am I right? Where they're pulling down statues of these great saints and leaders who, if anything, actually stood up for the indigenous people of California against the oppressive colonial. Uh, Spanish and uh, you know Portuguese who were trying to impose their will upon them. So, so I find that you're, you're, you, you are right in a sense that people lack that sense of history. But, um, but, but I'm just wondering, would you keep all statues up? I mean, some statues, like if, you know, I'll just create this hypothetical example. If there was a statue of Adolf Hitler in, in Berlin and in, in the central square, I don't think anybody would be in favor of keeping that. I think you could say, let's move it to a museum just you know, so that it's an artifact, but um, there has to be a line, right? That we, that we can cross. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not, I think this is, a lot of people in my own organization will not be happy with me saying this, but this is actually a weakness of, it's one of the few of conservative philosophy. And it is an instinct to preserve things that are in front of us for the mere fact that they're in front of us. Now, look, yeah. there is an argument to be made for the fact that if things have survived the test of time, they're likely to have a degree of value. Mm -hmm. For example, we're very likely to still be drinking wine and still be eating with cutlery from, you know, ceramic plates off wooden tables <laughs> in a thousand years than we are to be using the strangest gadget, you know, that's coming and popping up and, and falling away today. We sure. know that people have attributed value to these things and not been able to innovate or find something better for thousands of years. So we know that eating from the plate and drinking wine is probably going to still have value. Mm -hmm. But um, I, think, I think there does need to be a mechanism on the conservative right for analyzing whether something does have value. Even if it's part of history, it, you know, it, it is not inherently valuable. Yeah. And there are parts of our history which are less, are less proud, frankly. Um, but my main objection to the statue toppling is it has been a frenzy in hysteria. I think it's probably been, to be fair, um, helped along by the fact we're all in lockdown. We haven't been mm -hmm. going out as much as we should have been. Sure. Exercising, seizing, seeing friends. But um, yeah, uh, it, it, was, it was unfortunate to see that uh, I guess a man who there is more of a uh, justification for not celebrating, it turned very quickly very quickly into a total attack on a lot of the history that actually binds us. That sure. Actually yeah. sure. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely against tearing down statues of saints. That's where I would draw the line. Um, I've got to ask you something about your organization, just like to spin gears a little bit here. So your organization is composed primarily of young people. So the first question I have about that is do you, you mentioned that there is this shift among Gen Zers, do you notice a lot of them are more traditionally conservative or, or maybe even embracing religion, embracing tradition and values? Is that what you noticed? Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say it's in full swing yet. Um, the modern world, I think is fairly fair to see, is quite vacuous. And mm -hmm. it is quite, you know, it's most devoid of meaning that I think it's ever been. Uh, some quite somber stats. I'm not sure where Canada stats in the, uh, sits in this, but I 
believe better than the United Kingdom in America. Um, but we're all linked in the Anglosphere. You know, we face mm -hmm. a lot of the same problems. Um, in, a, um, in a recent study, they tested school children and they asked them, how far do you agree, uh, among a number of questions, how far do you agree with the question, my life has clear meaning and purpose? And the bottom two were the United Kingdom and the United States, out of, wow. I think, 150 countries. So um, especially in our countries, these sort of liberal capitalistic um, nations that have sort of done away with tradition in many ways, um, we're beginning to see really a generation of people who don't know mm. where they belong and don't know what the meaning of life is. And um, frankly, I think there is an appetite for it. People aren't always able to um, articulate. Not everybody mm -hmm. studies philosophy, not everybody studies economics. Um, people aren't always able to articulate these, these core instincts, these things in here that they feel to be true. You know, they might look at mindless consumerism. They might look at individualism. They might look at, um, I guess, the vacuousness of the left. Because I, I, I do believe that although... I think we both would probably agree on Christian grounds, you know, advocacy for the helping of the needy mm -hmm. and those without is, is a good, it is a good instinct. Yeah. It is an incredibly materialistic way that um, the left often goes about mm -hmm. it as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, for, for the left, it's all about the distribution of resources when actually yeah. there's more than the distribution of resources. There's dignity as well. There's exactly. dignity and rights. And, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, interestingly, this was exactly the problem that uh, Iscariot had. And uh, Iscariot was complaining when uh, the woman came to Jesus Christ uh, shortly before you know, his crucifixion and arrest and was pouring uh, oil on his hair. And Iscariot was lamenting this and he was saying, well, why didn't you sell it and spend, you know, mm -hmm. this is a year's wages. Well, why didn't you sell it and, get, and spend it on the poor? And Christ, obviously a man of, I believe, impeccable judgment, saw through this. And he said, look, the poor will always be among you. He said this in, you know, zero, well, 30 AD. Yeah. The poor are still among us today. They will still be among us, I believe, until the end of time. This is a fact of human mm -hmm. society, even if it's only relative. Uh, I know it's more complex than that. And, the, you know, there are more factions. There are people who are moderately, you know, left-leaning. Then you have the rabid communists. Mm -hmm. but, um, I think on both the right and the left, people are looking at the politics and they're, say, they're thinking, this doesn't really have much meaning. You know, on the, on the right, there, there seems to be waffling along about, um, about economics and about markets. And people are thinking, well, actually, the things that are going wrong in my life aren't necessarily about resources. And I think the same with the left. Um, but I do think there has been some sort of undercurrent and appetite for things like this. People look at um, the the attitudes towards families. And we, had, uh, we have a centre-right publication called The Telegraph in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the, the highest uh, profile centre-right um, newspaper. And last Christmas, they promoted a story, um, which they got in a lot of trouble for, but they did it anyway, um, which was promoting, so they paid money for this article to be seen far and wide, which they don't normally. And, you know, it appeared on people's Twitter feeds, it appeared, and it was promoting, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, promiscuity. It was promoting mm -hmm. extramarital. extramarital Give promiscuity. their wives a cheating pass, is, what, is that what you said? Yeah. It's absolutely depraved. And uh, the, the reactions in the comments were so negative. They were so furious. You know, people of all yeah. different 
people of all, you know, people were canceling their subscriptions and it really did perform badly. And it makes you ask certain questions as to why they were promoting it. Um, but in terms of people having an appetite for it, in the United Kingdom, at least, you talked about our growth and I'm very happy for that. I've got an amazing team with me and you've been interviewing O'Hell. Obviously, his mm. knowledge and philosophy is fantastic. And it's amazing. It. Yeah. And his ability to articulate it in a very clear and concise manner. It's it's. It's brilliant. I do have a question though. You know, you guys are, are all young, it seems to me. It seems you guys are all kind of Gen Zers and maybe O'Hell is a millennial, I don't know. But yeah. you know, it's, it's encouraging that you guys are all young. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's a tendency among the young people, especially when you're a Gen Zer, to, to be reactive to maybe what your parents or what society tells you, right? So for example, when I was young, when I was in university, I was an anarchist, I was a socialist. And you know, that's a, that's a ridiculous philosophy and it's not a Christian philosophy either. But um, aren't you worried that once a lot of your leadership and once a lot of the people in your organization uh, grow up and grow out of, uh, I guess, their university days, they're going to leave the values that brought your organization together? In short, yes. Yes, it, it is a problem. Young people are more, I think, intellectually adventurous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know from my own past experience that I've lurched from one extreme to another. I'm not right. sure I was ever intellectually an anarchist, but I was definitely... Towards, you were a libertarian, right? Yeah. As well before that as well, yeah. So um, yeah. I've, I've sort of investigated every corner of the political quadrant, even though I don't think that's mm -hmm. very nuanced in terms of, you know, philosophies that you can adhere to. Yeah. Um, my only rea reaction to that would be, I believe that social conservatism is generally a destination. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's a transitive uh, philosophy. Because with social conservatism, with traditionalism, um, you, you tend to attribute meaning to certain areas of life. Mm -hmm. And you, it, it, you normally arrive at such a philosophy when there's a degree of maturity and a degree of... Um, that is true. Your, own values. your values proceed and your principles precede your politics rather than you know, observing some sort of system which can then perfect the rest. Mm -hmm. It is more about how we should approach politics in the first instance before looking at pragmatic ways to implement policy. Um, so I have no doubt, I have no doubt that a few may, you know, have some road to Damascus moment and lurch in another direction. <laughs> sure. But, um, we're not deliberately, it's also worth putting out there, we're not deliberately a young people's organization mm -hmm. either. Would appear to be, especially in the long term. Um, the the only reason is that we are up and coming, and you know we we've had good progress, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, we, we've just hit six thousand one hundred uh, followers on Twitter, which it's amazing. Happy. Yeah, uh, and there are a number of uh, sort of rival think tanks of similar size in the United Kingdom. One of them is called eighteen twenty eight, and it's a mm -hmm. neoliberal. Um, broadly sort of arch libertarian sort of uh, very limited government and very internationalized type of and a lot of virtue signaling about you know social issues um we've overtaken them even though they've been around for two years they've had um the current home secretary of the united kingdom priti patel they've had a number of politicians mps from the conservative party write for them we've just overtaken them that feels good that's amazing well done thank you very much and uh there's there's uh, another think tank was run by a very, very nice guy um, called Blue Beyond, which we are approaching in size as well. And it proves that there is an appetite for, you know, a, a politics of meaning, a politics of traditional politics of values. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm happy for that.
Um, but in terms of uh, being filled with young people, um, I think young people can be reactionary. And uh, it's, it starts with people looking at the current climate and thinking something's going wrong here. But we also do need to put forward this alternative. It needs to be a coherent and full alternative. Um, that's what we hope to do. We, we hope to not just say, you know, like we don't want to be part of these culture wars and just say that we don't agree with this. There tends to be, we want to actually put forward the um, substantial arguments. Right. Why and what else we could be doing. And um, in terms of sort of people of, of, all, of all backgrounds uh, finding an issue with mass migration, uh, our explanations for this, it, I think, again, articulates these things that people feel deep down but sometimes can't articulate. And when they do articulate, sometimes they articulate it horrifically or mm -hmm. it manifests, this feeling manifests into something much worse. Um, and that is that people have a longing for home. And theologically, I think this is a really interesting concept. Both you and me would probably have a good conversation about. Um, not everybody will obviously adhere to our um, theological uh, sort of prescriptions of it. We would say that man is inbuilt with this longing for reunification with peace and harmony and God. Yeah. That we will never find sort of pure peace and happiness. We may find it in moments of our life, you know, in extended moments, in people, in relationships. But mm -hmm. um, this sort of longing for purity and goodness is something that we must, you know, try and return to. But the, the longing for home is an enormous one. And uh, all people do. All people do. And Britain, as Canada, as the United States, it shouldn't just be, as Peter Hitchens, another British, um, rather pessimistic thinker, would say. Um, yeah. Society must continue being a society rather than just a collection of people living in the same place. Mm -hmm. you no, know, we just be atomized from one another. We, we function as part of a greater whole. And uh, there should be efforts to, you know, I, I do think that especially in Europe, because we have old cultures, we have, you know, the, these cultures that have been around and tied to a very specific patch of land, um, they, they are struggling to adapt to the mm -hmm. 21st century with, uh, you know, new influxes and um, change, social change. But I don't think they should forego, you know, the key foundations. Uh, but there needs to be a, a, an effort to adapt. But um, yeah. Uh, as I say, like um, in terms of London, London is uh, research has been done, and because it's, um, I think nearly forty percent of the population of London were born abroad. So, forget you know ethnicity; it just they weren't actually born in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of social cohesion, people need to have general trust of their, their neighbours, their surrounding. Um, when often. People don't speak the same language. They don't adhere to the same religion. They don't live in the same parts of the community. There's socioeconomic differences. You know, there's differences of, uh, of class. Of, all of these things are things that need to be overcome in the uh, interests of creating a stable environment and a, and a harmonious home. Yeah, and, when, and people are divided and, and they can't really live uh, together as, as one community. They don't think of, of each other as as part of a wider community. I think it's interesting because, you know, when you look at your team and you look at your leadership, um, you have, I think, a greater proportion of ethnic minorities, if I may say, uh, than even many labor think tanks, which yeah, is interesting. You know, yeah. It proves that, yeah. in fact, one of the reasons which I'm quite positive about immigration is just because, yeah. unfortunately, in 
the sort of um, homogenous or whatever, you know, ethnically British populations. Unfortunately, I think if we take uh, Sir Glubb's explanation of things, they entered the period of affluence and the period of commerce much earlier, mm-hmm. which means they've done away with a lot of the traditions, a lot of the values and Christianity, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I'm quite positive about migration is that we can bring people who do still adhere to things that Britain would have upheld in quite high regard not too long ago. Uh, I'm half French myself, uh, I have a French father, so I don't come from a natural um, background who, uh, of somebody who would be ad, you know, an adherent to militantly rooted and conservative mm-hmm. and, uh, and Christian background. But um, I, find it, I find it encouraging that it's our values that are universal, it's our values that bind us. And I think that's the strongest way to build a state. It's the strongest yeah. way to build a nation of people. I would agree with that. I have uh, one question about those values. You actually have t- 10 principles on your website, 10 principles of conservatism. I'm going to put your website on the description box below. In it, you argue that conservatives, and I would agree with this, should protect the family as the foundational unit of society. That's just basic anthropology, as far as I can tell. Uh, but you go on to say that foundational unit of society is not necessarily the nuclear family. Why not? Well, quite frankly, it's because we have children in um, foster care. We have children Mm. without stable parents. And for the time being, for the time being, if there are stable, more stable homes that can be taking uh, children who orphans and the rest of it in, I don't think it's the greatest injustice that they would find people who love them in the first instance. Um, I, I do wish we are supporters of the nuclear family. It's a very specific um, definition of the family, but it is monogamous marriage and children, and you know, marriage for the purpose of bringing up mm-hmm. children. Um, and we are, you know, very virulent defenders of this. Um, now, the the family is the foundation of all society because it is the point at which we understand not only liberty because it's taken from us but we understand our position, obligations, duty, and it's the first place that we find belonging and love, or in an ideal sense anyway, not for everybody. But um, So people who begin to understand duty, people who begin to understand love, and especially conditional love as well, which is given by the father in many cases, uh, that we need to achieve as well, it, 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 it raises people to have a character in which they can then participate in wider society and a civilization at large, mm-hmm. understanding that it is not them, their demands above all, but it is also um, a, a period of education, a period of knowledge of human beings, of you know, place, I think. And uh, it is incredibly important. Hegel was a huge um, articulator of this. Um, he said that, ironically, because we are starved of liberties for the first 18 years of our life or thereabout um when we first encounter them they have enormous value and i'm sure that most people can remember when they were when they were a kid wanting to be able to drink wanting to be able to drive wanting not yeah. to stay up late beyond a certain time yeah exactly. yeah, yeah you you want all these you know adult freedoms and when they come about um especially, you know, in, in the early stages, there's a huge euphoria about being able to express them, you know, being able to drink, being able, you feel old. And then afterwards, you begin to realize there are qualifications as to why these liberties are not given to everybody else. There are qualifications as to why 
this is something that we need to first reach maturity before we can uh, before we can then experience. Um, it's the same with driving cars. We don't give we don't give um, driving licenses to people who have never proved that they cannot drive first. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an analogy for the family. We do not let people into society at large, into civilization, before they've had a period of maturity, of proving that they can, you know, before participating. And that's why the family is enormously important. It, it, it acts as this bulwark against, you know, sort of um, the more ch uh, children in there. I think it's actually really interesting to observe the um, behavior of children, because although they're innocent, they're innocent because they're not aware of the um, immorality of their actions a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if a man was uh, breaking, car, breaking people's windows with, you know, tennis balls, and uh, if, uh, if a man was um, setting fire to, you know, doing whatever sort of immature things children do, so, you know, setting fire to, uh, well, making a campfire in somebody else's garden, accidentally setting a tree on fire. If a man was to do this, it would be very different because the man is aware of you know the the property which you know he's trespassed he's aware of all of the crimes and the sort of immoralities that he's taken place in but um we often look at children as if they are pure and obviously christ thought a lot of children but he thought a lot particularly of their humility yeah he did not necessarily say that he said well, you must be like these children but he said that you must like these children specific children and saint augustine a guy who i'm reading um i'm not sure if he's venerated in um Yes, he's also venerated as a saint. Every every uh, Catholic saint prior to I think ten something or other ten seventy six it might be I think is venerated as an Orthodox saint as well. Yeah, no, I I think I know that great yeah. isn't venerated in the Catholic Church. But by all means, he should be. But um, sorry, who isn't? Uh, Constantine the Great. Uh, I'm not sure if he is. To be honest, I I yeah. haven't looked that up. But no, uh, yeah. I actually, you know, one uh, Catholic saint I quite admire and has had a lot of influence on me is St. Thomas Aquinas. I quite like him. I need to read. Yeah, and uh, St. Francis of Assisi, too. So I, I do have a lot of uh, respect uh, for the Catholic saint. I think that they were holy, holy men uh, and well, holy men of God. Yeah. Your, your religion is, uh, well, your sect is the second favorite of mine after Roman Catholicism. I did consider Eastern Orthodoxy for a while. Mm hmm. Uh, it's just hard to access if you don't live in a city, if you don't, you know, especially yeah. Greece, or if you don't live in Russia or, you know, Romania, it, it's hard to access. Uh, that's not the only reason, you know, there are theological reasons, but there's a huge amount of overlap between the two. Yeah, um, it's, it's very difficult to access, but I think uh, now, nowadays it's much easier uh, because they have so many missions in the West, Antiochian and Greek especially, are, are I find a lot more easier to access because they tend to have services in English too, as opposed to you know, just uh, Arabic or Russian or Greek or, you know, Romanian or whatever it might be. So, uh, but yeah, there is a lot of overlap and, and many of the saints do happen to coincide. So you were mentioning about St. Augustine that he, uh, he was saying something specific. Uh, was this about the innocence of children? Exactly. And yeah. in the earlier um, part of the confessions when he's describing children and himself as a child, and uh, he says that when he was a child, you know, he had no need of such things, but he went and stole mm -hmm. pears on the tree. Well, judging by what kids do today, what I did as a kid, um, that's quite lukewarm, you know. But uh, I guess back then, you know, growing pears for a tree was something of more value. And he was incredibly ashamed of this, but he described it and he said that he wouldn't have done it. Was he, was he not in a, in a crowd? 
And he did it for the pure sake of rebellion. He did it for the pure reason of destruction. And uh, there is this sort of rebellion and revolutionary spirit in children, which makes them somehow unsuitable at that age to be the, you know, the sort of trustees of the civilization, to be you know, in, in pole position beyond you know, just not having the knowledge and uh, the, inform, the informedness. I don't think they have the spiritual wisdom either. But um, it, it is particular, the, the innocence of children in not understanding the magnitude of what they do wrong. That, that, you know, and so the family comes about because the parents especially have to train their kids in what is good, beautiful, and just. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, certain religions such as um, Islam deny original sin. But I think if you, if you look at uh, children's behavior, it's sometimes the most immoral that we can ever be. Mm-hmm. Where we, we have not been civilized. This period of our education, this period of our you know, sort of movement towards maturity has not yet um, taken place. So children lie, children steal, children... Uh, you know, they can be violent. They can hit each exactly. other. Exactly. And, yeah. and to me, this is testament to original sin, but it also mm-hmm. shows that there is an enormous... The importance of what takes place between you know, birth and becoming a young adult is, is enormously important. And the education sector needs to educate in ways that I think it's not doing at the moment. Um, especially considering the family is is receding from public life and even you know from its stability, but um, the family is traditionally the place in which children are raised in such a way, and it is it is incredibly important just for civilization. So you know, I I think a lot. I think we agree on on almost uh, all of these issues. Maybe there will be some differences here and there, but for somebody who doesn't submit that you know there is a God or even that there is a God, but it's not really that important that I participate in a religion. How would you reach those people as the Orthodox conservatives, right? You're a think tank, you're supposed to reach, many of these people are in the conservative party, right, in Britain. So how do you reach these people who are just kind of lukewarm towards these kinds of traditional foundational values? You're gonna have to find some way to do that. I find it, and I think Ohel agrees with me, although it's not a pure consensus on the executive of Orthodox conservatives, um, that, there is a deeply rooted Christianity yeah. at the heart of, of conservatism. Um, it is uh, it is hard to di- distinct, uh, you know, to separate the two. Um, but at the same time, we have a number of followers, a, a huge number of followers who are not religious. You know, it's, it's not uncommon today to find such people. Um, what I would say that is, though, they can appreciate our sort of distaste at rabid individualism. At materialism, mm-hmm. um, they they sort of share a lot of the values, even if they don't um, sort of share the spiritual underlying reasons for them. And uh, something I find interesting about Christianity is that it teaches us that you know the seven cardinal sins, but um, it teaches us that there are certain behaviors that we should try and overcome within ourselves that are natural. That we you know we have original sin, we have a fallen nature. We will be, we will be envious, we will be um, greedy, we will be lazy, but we have to try and overcome these things, um, you know. And what's interesting is as psychological research begins to advance, our understanding of the human brain, our understanding of human life begins to advance, we understand that a lot of these things that we're, the Christianity advises us to sort of avoid are really self-defeating behaviors. Yeah. And it's sound 
to tell us to avoid these things. The, uh, there's a myriad, I encourage your watchers uh, to, to look at it, there's a myriad of research that says that the most materialistic people are some of the least happy. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, there's, a, there's a spiritual void in here which they try to fill with things. And of course it never, you know, this is why Hollywood is, is unfortunately, you know, full of suicides, it's full of overdoses. You know, people who try to get fame and try to get money and try to get wealth and power, it, it generally it is symptomatic of, of an emptiness that they have inside, you know, an inability to be satisfied with what is and the things that they do have in their life. Um, so I think and that there is more to life than money. And I think mm-hmm. that that is a key thing that we would have in common with them. Um, even if they just think that it is culture, it is history, it is, you know, um, not fully adhering to the sort of depraved nature of mm-hmm. modernity. Um, sort of things which are in some way in high esteem against sort of this relentless focus on, on money overall. And yeah, not I mean, caring about... Yeah, I think I think this idea that O'Hell and you have that uh, the conservatism is kind of uh, intrinsic, or maybe Christianity is intrinsic to conservatism. I don't know which way it is, but they're kind of linked in some way. Uh, I'm not sure it's a it's a sentiment I would share necessarily because I think that we can separate politics and and religion, and they have to work in symphony with each other. But I think they have to respect each other as separate spheres. But I think what you're saying is true. You can. You can appreciate that people live in individualized atoms. You know, when when people want to interact now, they do it online, right? Even when even when people are together in the same household, they'll text text each other as opposed to actually going up to each other and saying, "Hey, you know, can yeah. you do this? Can you do this for me? Can you can you help me out in this particular way?" And and that just is kind of defeats the purpose of human interaction to begin with. So I, I've got to I've got to move to one topic that you guys promote. And it's something that I actually am a big fan of. And that's the preservation and conservation and promotion of beautiful architecture. And uh, in particular, you look at modern architecture, and it's just very, it's very, it's, it's boring. It's, it, it, it's even, I would say, uh, oppressive in a sense, because it's not something that fills your mind with the uh, pursuit of the transcendental, I suppose, which is what traditional architecture is supposed to do. Um, but somebody who's looking at your position on architecture and saying, oh, you know, why should we keep uh, Trafalgar Square the way it is? Who cares about this? If, if King's College London or if, if Oxford University wants to build a new college, why sh- who cares if they do it in the traditional style? Uh, why should anybody care about old buildings? Isn't this just a bourgeois, bourgeois preoccupation, I suppose? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, it isn't. And scrutiny, yeah. again, puts it more beautifully than I ever could. It is that architecture is the only piece of art that we are compelled to look at. Right. You know, every other piece of art you don't have to observe. Mm-hmm. Especially for people living in cities, I think it becomes more vociferous then. When people are surrounded with buildings that scream to them, subconsciously or consciously, that they don't care. That the people who made this building don't care. They don't care what you're looking at, and they don't care about the people inside. You know, when, they, when you see these sort of dilapidated, brutalist tower blocks that are falling apart, you know, 10 years after being built, mm. um, it screams to people that whatever was going on here isn't important. It wasn't important to take enough to take care of. It wasn't important enough to, you know, we, we didn't have enough confidence 
in whatever activity was being done in this tower block, whether it was people living or whether it was office blocks, that it would still be going on 20 years in the future, 50 years in the future. One of the things that traditionalists uh, used to uh, factor into their building is one, architects would try and leave behind a legacy. They would try to leave something behind for the dead, no, for, no, for the unborn. They would try to actually um, say to the future that this was built you know, by me at this time. Um, and it, when, you, when you view traditionalist architecture, you know, often in stone and you know, the masonry, which is often beautiful and ornate, it, it not only teaches, uh, you know, it says to people who are looking that care was put in, but it gives them a sense of permanence, mm -hmm. especially if this is your own community, this is your own city. When you go past the beautiful, I, I, I'm sure, you know, even in the most ugly parts of the United Kingdom, that, you know, there are certain streets, there are certain buildings which are beautiful and they tend to be revered by the community at large. And this is for a specific reason. It's because it tells them that there is a permanence residing here. They are part of something which isn't going to be lost in two seconds, you know, that they are part of something rooted. And that, that's really important. And, you know, going back to that sort of need for home that we were talking about, um, I think that speaks to a certain part of people's soul. Uh, and even in a more rationalistic way, I think it merely tells them that their environment is not so hostile. And, you know, it's they interesting. Uh, the common objection is these are just bourgeois preoccupations with old buildings. But I find that when uh, it's true, it's when but when rich people build their homes, they build it in a beautiful way. They might build it like a French chateau, for example. I yeah. see that very popular style. Uh, but when uh, the working class, when the middle class have to work in buildings, they, ha they don't have any choice. They have to be confined to these brutalistic concrete and glass structures. Well, I would say it's a um, fallacy. Poor people have to live in, um, in horrible looking buildings. And um, I think it's also a fallacy that uh, rich people tend to live in nice looking buildings. Um, the, there's an object of taste to it as well. I think... Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes these things can be OTT, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a, a line between decadence and beauty. Yeah. Uh, but also, um, it, it doesn't necessarily, like, the, the costs of these things uh, tend to be, in the long term, self-fulfilling um, self anyway. So if you build a beautiful building uh, you, and you build it with materials that last, which normally helps it look beautiful mm -hmm. a lot of the time, um, you will get a higher return because not only will the value of that very property be worth more, but it will last longer. It will save you having to build mm -hmm. it again. Uh, so if the state is building this to house citizens, the state will not be indebted as much in the future by having to constantly rehouse. Sure. Yeah. There was, a, uh, there was a tower block called Grenfell Tower, which set, you know, built of shoddy materials and it set alight and a lot of people died in the United Kingdom. Um, now that is, not only a failure spiritually and morally of the British state, but it was a failure economically as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it isn't rational to house people in places which aren't going to be uh, around in the long term. We should be thinking beyond five-year increments. I think that's the problem of democracy. People have yeah. to thinking. They want achievements. They want, you know, the here and now, and they don't think about the beyond. You know, when you look at uh, Beautiful One Nation, uh, it, it, it's it's often indescribable, but it's beauty, and beauty can be shared by all. And Quebec City has a lot of examples of beautiful architecture. Quebec City and is beautiful, yeah. I, I, I I'm not I haven't been to Canada, and you know I hope to go, but um, I, I'm sure 
in your home city, Ontario, is it? Yeah. Yeah, there are certain buildings. There are certain buildings that people love. Well, St. Catharines, Ontario, yeah. There are certain buildings that... Some of the oldest buildings that are there. And, and you know, as we were going, and one of the truths of conservatism is that if things have lasted the tests of time, if people have not said, right, we can do away with this, and the longer period of time that, you know, people have thought that, normally the more value it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean this is also... Um, I guess another truth in conservatism, which isn't too articulated in in the academia, but it's that sometimes we do need to uh, revive. Sometimes we do need to restore. Uh, things that are discarded are not always discarded because they ought to have been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in certain revolutions, things were thrown out and brought back. Um, it's such as the French Revolution and the Church. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes restoration is also warranted as well. But um, certainly, the things that have survived and this goes for buildings as well, are the ones that have the highest value. Um, if in a thousand years people are looking back at, uh, you know, the tower block monstrosities that build out of cheap, cheap, cheap materials and they're saying, wow, this is fantastic, we need to build like this again, then I suppose somehow, I, I imagine architecture must have gone down somehow an even worse route than it is today, but that would probably be part of the reason. But um, it would mean that somehow what's, had been what had survived the test of time had value in comparison to what is existing today. So we're getting towards the end of the interview. I'm just going to ask you one random question as uh, you know, you can answer it personally or you can answer it for your organization. What do you think about the nationalization of the railroads in Britain? Well, uh, so uh, generally like you can probably feel from my rhetoric and uh, you know, the, the way this interview has gone. Um, I'm not sure if the animosity between traditionalist conservatism and sort of uh, laissez-faire capitalism exists on the Canadian rights. And I'm not sure how mm-hmm. connected you are into the Canadian rights. There is no real traditional conservatism in Canada. It's non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I have, I would say an internet friend, uh, you know, a guy I follow on Twitter who I respect a lot, and he wrote a fant- he's from Canada. He mm-hmm. wrote a fantastic article on... Um, Disraeli in the United Kingdom, one of our old paternalist and mm-hmm. traditionalist uh, prime ministers, guy who was um, from uh, European Jewish heritage but loved the country so much he wanted to be, you know, part of the old part of Britain. He ended up living in a beautiful traditionalist uh, manor house mm-hmm. and trying to place roots into um, into the country. Now he was known for birthing a sort of Toryism, a sort of conservatism in the United Kingdom, which was far far more opposed and distinct from the liberalism across the other side of the house it was more concerned with providing uh, social provisions social welfare not making people you know dependent on the state but the state's being taking the role of you know a, a father taking the role it is disraeli really a good figure to uphold though because he's not a burkean conservatism in the sense that he was very much a colonialist am i wrong i'm i'm not sure about his views on colonialism to be honest but unfortunately then that period of British history, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who wasn't. Um, well, not Gladstone, surely. Gladstone, I think, uh, clashed with the Queen on, on, on the issue of imperialism from time to time. Uh, yeah. But I could be wrong about that. And my British history is no, a little I bit... Believe, I believe that's correct. But uh, even then, in terms of the general public from in the 1800s, unfortunately, um, I remember reading in a specific uh, article in history book, um, the public mood went from either indifference towards empire to 
a huge amount of pride and support. Mm -hmm. uh, the Urban Window wasn't so much, you know, a political opposition, and Gladstone was probably the first beginnings of that in our country. So yes, no, there, there, there's certainly, you know, historical figures aren't squeaky clean, but um, he was, Disraeli was the start of a paternalistic form of conservatism, which has survived in the Tory party. Mm -hmm. all the, you know, they call it the One Nation Caucus. Yeah. Today, unfortunately, it's come to mean just social liberals who are okay with state provisions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. A lot, them, a lot of them would identify with the Democrats and do identify with the Democrats in America. So that gives you some sort of... But it was never about the, so, the social liberalism which it's ascribed today. In terms of railroads, you probably got from the earlier points of this interview that there, there's an ongoing dispute, and an economic dispute as well, within the Tory party. Mm -hmm. uh, between the laissez-faire liberals who don't really ascribe to many conservative um, values and the rest of us who are happy with um, a modicum of state intervention as long as it doesn't obtrude uh, and uh, sort of uh, interfere with civil society, make people dependent on the state, replace the family and replace civil associations that should be doing the jobs that they do. Um, but I know that the, at least in, in pragmatic terms, the privatization of our railways hasn't been a fantastic project. Um, no. It's priced there generally, you know, they're always late and striking, um, which isn't necessarily to do with the privatization. But um, many of the train lines that were once open are now closed. It, the trains in the United Kingdom generally aren't in a good way. There's ways to go about. I, I think de generally they need um, improvement and they need more infrastructure spending, but we have this HS2 project, High Speed Rail True 2, which is now running uh, at extortionate costs. And it's cutting the journey from London to Birmingham by 20 minutes for billions and billions of pounds. Um, so yes, in short, I would be happy with um, renationalization of the railways, as long as there could be oversight, as long as, mm -hmm. uh, as if it turns out to be worse, you know, and a greater loss making um, than it's ever been, um, both directly and indirectly, then we could look at, you know, alternative, maybe a, a middle way between uh, the private sphere being involved, contracts and uh, objects. Yeah, I, I guess, uh, I mean, from a traditional conservative point of view, I guess there's a nostalgia for the railroad during nationalization, right? There's this image of people uh, going to go on the trains dressed in their little ties and their suits and they... Uh, they have lots lots more space and the British countryside just whizzes past you. And now it's very much an arduous task to get on the British trail, rail system. I noticed that when I was living in in the UK. Uh, so, uh, so Tom, yeah, thank you for, for joining me. This has been a very interesting conversation. I've got to ask you, where can we find the Orthodox conservatives online? Well, luckily, um, we've now come on Google to... Mm -hmm. If you search dogs conservatives were the first thing that comes up, which is, you know, very happy for our yeah. website. Um, we're easy to find on Twitter. It's at OrthodoxConsGRP, the group. Um, my personal Twitter is at TomColsey99 underscore. Um, yeah, and hopefully we can put out content that you find interesting for the politics of the 21st century. That's fantastic. You have a YouTube channel too, don't you? Uh, recently, yeah, we've uh, we've started that out so we have one interview at the moment um with a woman who's started one of these free schools one of the most mm -hmm. successful schools in the country it's an inner city school she's an arch traditionalist she's sometimes um she's a mixed heritage actually 
and she's uh, she makes her students sing God Save the Queen. She makes her, si her students sing uh, I Vow to Thee, My Country. She's incredibly patriotic, and uh, she's been doing absolute wonders uh, with her school and the education system. It's so, Catherine yeah. uh, Burblesing, I think, right? Yeah, it was a good interview. I'll make sure to put a link to your channel as well in my description box below. So thank you, Tom. It was very great to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking and uh, wish you the best with uh, this podcast.